0: The sports comedy is, of course, one of the distinctive arts of broadcasting. First developed in radio, naturally, and uh, very early in Ireland. I don't need to tell anyone who has listened to our commentators how difficult an art it is. I am lost in admiration at the way and at the speed with which um, commentators on football or hurling or whatever... Uh, are able to identify individual players instantly and keep the flow of speech, feeding the listener and
1: uh, giving him the excitement. Former controller of programmes, the Faracon paying tribute to the commentators who, in half a century, have played such an important part in the development of broadcasting. But the very first mention of sport on the newly inaugurated service was this announcement broadcast on the evening of the 9th of January. 1926.
2: The Irish team to play France at Ravenhill on January 23rd was announced this afternoon. The team is as follows. W.E. Crawford Malone. D.J. Cusson, Dublin University. G.V. Stevenson, North. T. Hewitt, Queen's University. Orr Hamilton, North. Mark Sugden, Dublin University.
1: Fifteen rugby names making history over the newfangled wireless. And just for the record, Ireland won that game by 11 points to nil. Broadcasting, of course, was in its infancy then, cat's whiskers and crystal sets, high poles and aerials over many gardens, and listening was by earphones. A far cry indeed from the transistors and the stereo of today. Throughout that first year, sport slowly began to be noticed in the programmes. Other announcements followed and results began to filter through even at infrequent intervals. The first programme piece was a short talk on rowing on the 16th of July by, rather appropriately, a man called M. V. Rowan. And the next featured sports programme was a 5 minutes Impressions of the Horse Show on the 6th of August by Claire Cook, so a lady's choice very early on. And then came the big breakthrough, the first ever live outside broadcast not only in Ireland, but as it turned out in Europe and the whole Eastern Hemisphere. You see, because of restrictive clauses in their agreements with the news agencies, the BBC were prohibited from broadcasting live commentaries on open-air events until 1927. And so, 2RN took the honours of being first in the field in a field commentary situation. The match was the All-Ireland hurling semi-final at Croke Park. The date, the 29th of August 1926. The team's Tilkenny versus Galway and the young technician assigned to duty on this historic day was Jimmy Maham.
3: We had a, the old type microphone it was in around 27 or 28 pounds in weight. Around Sykes they call it. I believe they have it still here in the museum. I don't know. But however, that was parked out on the touchline if you follow me, on a tripod with a, a little small hole in the front for to talk into and underneath were four very big batteries there were ships batteries i think to polarize it and there was always a great danger that that would be knocked over but it never was in Crow park i was on the touch line there was somebody else inside on the stand but they were all around us it was just a great novelty in those days. of course it was a great novelty for us too i can assure you
1: the novelty has become almost a commonplace as Radio Erden commentators cover the sporting scene from Krog Park to Chile, from Mullingar to Moscow, from Belfast to Berlin. But the first of them all was the commentator on that memorable occasion, a newspaper man who wrote under the name of Carberry, but whose own name was Paddy Meegan. He was
3: a wonderful character in his way. Of course, he could talk like nobody's business. And... Uh he was the best man I ever saw for to knock back a baby power. I don't mean to say now that he was a drunkard or anything like that, but he could be commentating away on the, on the match, you see, and somebody might be in the line of scoring. And say, oh, it's a goal, I think. Oh, well saved, sir. The baby power was gone. I saw him actually do it.
1: Sure, that's only known as the commentator wetting his whistle as the referee blows his. And now, remembering those far-off days, the craftsmanship of Carberry as a commentator, the impact of the sports broadcast on the public, here's a man who was to make a great impact on the scene himself a little later,
4: Eamon de Barra. When I came back from London in 1929, and the late Paddy Meegan, God rest him, was doing the running commentaries of G A. games at the time, and Paddy Meegan was a great GE reporter. He had been a hurler himself, and his brother Mick was captain of the Cork 1911 All-Ireland football team. And he was the uh, GA correspondent for the Irish Times. He also wrote an article every week in the Cork Weekly Examiner, Carberry's column. But he was a very good commentator. And I happened to come back from London. I got a job for a while in Fords in Cork on the export department there. And the representative of the Russian government that time was an Italian engineer named Pediani. Pediani made a, what we called at that time a wireless set and it had a big wooden frame, I remember well. It was about three feet high, and at that time you had to have a wet battery and a dry battery. And he told me the parts cost him £25. And he sold me the set when he was recalled to London for £5. I used to have the set on Sundays when Carberry would be broadcasting, say, a Munster final, and I'd have to put it out in the garden and let the uh, crowd gather. And at that time, I always remember when Carberry would... Give an exciting bit of commentary. How the crowd would cheer, especially if it was a cork goal. <laughs> and while they were looking at the at the box, but it was the only set in the neighbourhood at the time, and it was a great novelty at that time. Sport was the one item of radio or radio or whatever way you pronounce it, wireless uh, items at that time. Well, commentaries on sport. There was a tremendous interest in sport, and of course. People at that time didn't read newspapers to the extent they do now. And uh, the programmes, especially the live programmes of matches, very exciting. They used to tell a story, and it's really very good just to have it recorded, if you like, that Cock were playing Tipperary in the final of the Munster Hurling Championship in Thurless. And at that time there was widespread unemployment in Cork and a great lot of hurling enthusiasts couldn't travel to Thurles to see the match. And Brabant's, a firm of supplying uh, wireless sets in the Grand Parade in Cork at the time, used to have one of the old-fashioned, like the old gramophone, big, uh, what you call it, the big horn, out through the first floor of the office in uh, Grand Parade. It might be four or five hundred people out down in the Grand Parade listening. Cabry was doing the running competition. Here we are in this, the closing stages, five minutes to go, this tremendous monster Hornby final. Sean Oak Murphy, the fair-haired cock, full-back, has hit the ball out, Tipperary leading by one point. Jim Hurley has in centre field. He's passed it out the week to Dinny Barry Murphy. He's raced in. He's sent it in to Balty Hearn. I should explain there were two Hearns playing for cock at the time, Balty, uh, Paddy Hearn, and Ga was the nickname he had, Mike Lehearne, on the wing. And Ga was the sharpshooter. He could get a point. He was like Christy Ring or like uh, Eddie Kerr. now. He was a marvellous forward. And his play at nearly always was not to go for scores himself, but to pass the ball to Gah. And the crowd were looking up at this this big bugle arrangement in Brabant's window... And is going on, only a few minutes to go now, and Baldy Hearn has the ball on the 21-yard line. Johnny Lachey, the Tipperary full-back, has come out and tackled him. Two or three Tipperary men around him. Baldy has lost the one. No, he has it again. And one fellow was clutching his cap, and in the excitement, he shouted up to the the loudspeaker. He says, for God's sake, sir, tell him, pass it to Gare.
1: Other sports were covered, but problems continued, technical and otherwise, and Jimmy Mahan saved the day in Lansdowne Road and former rugby star Louis McGee, making his bow as a commentator, was almost brought down by the ball, would you believe?
3: It was out on the touchline, and uh, uh, our friend Louis McGee and one of our engineers, was with them out on the touchline. Now, I was away inside, under the stand. There was no box in those days. And uh, uh, somebody kicking to touch, I presume hit the microphone knocked it over mm-hmm. and incidentally the BBC were taking this commentary yes. and of course everything went dead after a few terrific crackles everything went dead and I knew immediately what had happened so I got a new coil the coil had fallen out the microphone fell down the coil had fallen out I got a new coil and of course I couldn't get through the crowd I had to go to the end of the stand out and get down as far as, as far as I best I could to where um my friend out on the touchline was waiting for the kyle and I just threw it across the heads of the crowd. He put it back into the microphone and we were in business again.
1: And then came 1928, the Taltine Games in Krog Park. And even public figures didn't adapt to that cumbersome contraption, the dratted microphone.
3: I remember now the, ta- the opening of the Taltine Games. We had this same famous microphone on the tripod. Now, J.J. J. Welsh, who has also passed on, he was Minister for Post and Telegraphs, and he was to open the, the games. And we had all arranged with them. You see, the, the microphone was out about nine or ten yards in front of the Hogan stand. I suppose that should be metres now, but you can, you can work out the metres, I won't. And facing the, uh, facing out Croke Park. Now, he was to walk out from the stand, out in front of the microphone, and open the games, say a few words clear them open. Instead of that he walked between the microphone and the stand and deliberately turned his back on it and opened the games.
1: World boxing champion Gene Tunney had come to see the games and he became the first in a long line of sports celebrities to be interviewed over an Irish microphone.
3: Well there was a famous occasion Gene Tunney who had won the world heavyweight boxing championship he had just retired and he was visiting Ireland at the time. Whether he came for the Games or not now, I just can't remember, but Paddy Meaghan got hold of him, and he said a few words to the folks, as he called them, and was quite nice about it. He seemed to be a very nice fella. Of course, there was only a momentary glimpse of
1: him I got. 1930 saw the introduction of a new weekly sports service on Sundays called Gaelic Sports News, presented by Sean O'Callaghan.
2: The heavy rain eased somewhat before the game, but the high wind continued throughout the contest. Louth had the breeze behind them in the opening half and led at halftime 1 5 to 3 points. Both teams fielded as previously announced and according to their program. Louth's victory was fully deserved. They proved the sounder team so far as their general combination was concerned. And the only slight difference was the better feeling by me, who retained their grip on a greasy ball.
1: Providing reports and results of the day, it was concerned solely with gaily Games activities in its early years, a fact which provoked protests from other sports followers.
2: Independent, 22nd of August, 33. I beg to protest against the action of the broadcasting authorities in omitting from the sporting news on Sunday any reference to the results of the games played under the Association Football Code. Now that the soccer season is opening, I hope they will give followers of that code an equal opportunity to get the results of the games in which they are interested.
1: For a brief period, the programme was expanded to cover all other sports, but soon reverted to its original format. Gaelic Sports News, devised by Sean O'Callaghan and continued to this day by his son, Sean Og, survived many difficulties before becoming the longest-running programme on radio. As you can imagine,
0: collecting results from all over Ireland for the innumerable uh, GA matches was quite a job. And with the kind of staff we had and the kind of money we had, it would have strained us intolerably to have set up any kind of uh, result collecting system but the system that operated then and for quite a number of years was set up by a man who wasn't on staff at all and that was the late Sean O'Callaghan the father of Sean O'Callaghan who uh, who managed this remarkable feat on his own getting friends of his and Supporters of the G.A. to phone in the results to him for his uh, Sunday night broadcast.
1: Even in the early 30s, listeners were critical of the standard of commentators and proclaimed their displeasure in the press. Independent, 14th of
2: August, 33. Enthusiast R. Dreyer writes: Could some improvement be made on the running commentary on Gaelic matches? Many of us here in the north are very interested in Gaelic matches and can only hope with the aid of a good commentary to visualise the play. Can't we have announced to us the flight of the ball in its principal movements, movements that count in the game? Can't we be told who plays the ball, to what side frees, etc. are given, who takes them, and the result...
1: Aspiring sports commentators are usually auditioned first and appointed only after searching tests of their ability.
4: But Eamon de Barra was, you might
1: say, rushed into it.
4: There was some trouble with, uh, I won't go into it, de mortuos Nil nisi bonum. And the Central Council met on a Saturday. At the time I was camping out in rush with a friend of mine. And the uh, matter had been discussed between the Broadcasting Authority and the Central Council about the continuation of running commentaries. And I was in bed. It was about one o'clock. My friend and myself, Mick Creman, who happened to be at that time the uh, private secretary to Gerry Boland, who was minister for Post and Telegraphs. And we were reading by candlelight, as you'd have to do in a camp, and uh, about one o'clock, I heard the noise of a motor coming down the sandy um, uh, boreen leading down to the South Strand. And I said to Mick Creman, there's a car coming down. And we got up, went out, and it was Sean McCarthy, who at that time got dressed and was president of the and Paddy O'Keefe General Secretary, and they came into the tent. We made them a cup of tea. We had a primus stove there. And uh, Padio said to me, "You'll have to do the running commentary this afternoon, the final of the Leinster Football Championship." Lower than me? Oh, I said, "I won't do it. I've no experience of broadcasting." Oh, you'll have to do it. And they kept on. Both of them said they had decided at the Central Council meeting that I would do it. So I, I had to take it on, much as I didn't want to do it. And I went in. I did it. And. Uh, Incidentally, that night, the uh, Sunday night, Sheemsamur and the Mansion House, we used to attend that every night, Mick Kremen and myself, every Sunday night, and cycle back out to Rush. I wouldn't like to try cycling out to Rush now after a Cayley. And about, I remember about 10 o'clock, Jerry Boland, who was the minister, came in to see Mick Kremen about something. He knew Mick would be there, and he said he had been down in Rosscommon, which was his constituency, that afternoon. And he said he was listening into my commentary and he said to me, you're a fixture. So, and you know that uh, I used to have to do the two commentaries on St. Patrick's Day and a commentary on the dancing exhibition as well, speaking for over four hours. And at that time, I think my recollection is that the fee for a single match was, was either four or five guineas and for the two matches on St. Patrick's Day, seven guineas. And no expenses. And no danger
1: money either to compensate for the day he was involved in an armed takeover of the mic. Independent, 25th of September,
2: 33. Thousands of radio users listening in to the broadcast of the All-Ireland Gaelic football final from Croke Park, Dublin, yesterday had an unexpected thrill.
4: Yeah, well, I was in the middle of the commentary on Seamus Hughes, He was the assistant director of broadcasting at the time. He was sitting beside me. And uh, the uh, broadcasting box in Croke Park that stood between the Hogan stand, the old Hogan stand, and the long stand uh, was up on uh, the uh, roof of a low building. And when I was speaking into the mic, sitting directly in front of me, I heard the door at my back being opened. And I heard Seamus Hughes protesting. I remember, well, he said, no buys, no buys. And he was pulled out, and one man hit him. And they took the mic, there were two of them there, and they broadcast something. And I can't recollect directly now what they actually broadcast, whether it was some protest about Republican prisoners or a protest about the fact that Bishop O'Darty was throwing in the ball at the match. There was a protest about him at that time. I can't recollect clearly what it was they announced, but it was over in about two minutes.
3: Well, they're supposed to be the IRA at the time. I wasn't there, I was in the control room. They got through and demanding the release of the prisoners in Mount Joy. They got that much out when they were cut off.
1: The 30s provided relays of the FA Cup final from Wembley, the Grand National from Aintree. At home, Dr Willie Hooper gave Soccer's first live commentary from Daly in 1935, and Mick Byrne broadcast the first commentary on an Irish race, the Derby of 1936. And the microphone picked up and carried the roar of racing engines over the roar of the crowd from the Phoenix Park. And there again we were very primitive. We had um,
3: we had an old post office truck. The commentator in the in the cab and the equipment in the back. I noticed a dreadful wet day, I remember, as well. We were up somewhere around by the Eagle Monument, I think it was. Between that and the Gough Monument at the time, of course, that's gone since. Somewhere up the main road, anyway, we
1: were. But trouble was brewing. In 1937, the GAA and the Director of Broadcasting couldn't agree on the choice of commentator for the Railway Cup finals. As a result of the dispute, the GAA withdrew permission to broadcast their games and consequently there was no broadcast at all on St Patrick's Day. But when the All-Ireland semi-final stage was reached and the impasse continued, the station authorities
4: thought up a plan to beat the ban. You see, I opted out of the thing. Mm. Once the the trouble started, I didn't want to be participating in it. And I told Kiernan I didn't want to continue any longer. And uh, he asked me then uh, when when the... uh, The trouble arose about doing a commentary, a live commentary on the field. He asked me, would I participate with Sean O'Callaghan, who used to do the GA results on Sunday nights, And that Sean O'Callaghan would... uh, The match was in Killarney. uh, Would do the first half. Once the first half was over, he'd go down, return to the town of Killarney, to the post office, and telephone an account of the match that would be broadcast. And then when the match was over... I would rush away from the field down to the post office and do my summary of the match, and that was broadcast. I don't remember any difficulty, whatever. I made my notes during the second half of the mm. match mm. as the um, the scores and the run of the play, etc. And then it was a, a rush. I had to do it on foot from the field in Killarney into the town to the um, post office. But I sat down and... and the telephone. I don't recollect there was any delay. But happily, by the time the All-Ireland football final came round,
1: the breach was healed. Press, 25th of September, 37.
2: For the first time in the history of Irish sport, a priest will be the commentator in a football match. He is the Reverend Father M. Hamilton of Ennis County Clare who will broadcast the All-Ireland Football Final, which takes place tomorrow at Croke Park between
1: Cavan and Kerry. Unhappily, the wrong score was given at the end of the game, and there were more complaints. But then, there always have been complaints against commentators, and Damon DeBarra was even accused of fixing a game.
4: And I remember the letters I used to get about um, uh, partisanship, falsely accusing me of partisanship. And th- at that time, there used to be acu- accusations made, at the GA, that uh, that the uh, draws were, were managed, pre-managed, in order to get extra gate money. Mm. I had the experience on one occasion when Cavan were playing. Jim Smith, the great footballer that he was. And the other team we were leading by a goal. And it was just the last minute of the game, the last half minute of the game, Kevin were awarded a 50. And I said, this is a crucial stage now in the game. Kevin are down a goal, and if Jim Smith goes for a pint, they have no chance of making a draw of it. But if he goes for a goal, he has a great chance of getting it. And I have some sort of a feeling, this is the way I put it, that he will go for a goal, that he must, and he probably will get it. The next minute he had shot a gold. And, of course, I was accused of knowing beforehand that the thing was readied up. In 1938, a schoolboy with
1: dreams of becoming a commentator applied for an audition. It was the start of the greatest success story in Irish sports broadcasting,
5: the emergence of Michael O'Hare. I got a letter on the Friday to know could I report to Croke Park on the following Sunday and do part of a match between Wexford and Loud and the National League. And there were, I think it was five of us, tested in the first half. Each was asked to do five minutes of that particular match. And it was being fed back to the then director of broadcasting, the late Dr Tom Kiernan. And uh, Dermot Maguire, I think, was the technician there that day. And at halftime, after I had done my last five minutes of the first half, word came through, would the last fellow do the second half? Well, I, in my school blazer and school cap, was the last fellow, and I did the second half, and as I say, I haven't shut up since.
1: His first broadcast was in Mullingar on the All-Ireland football semifinal, and technician Jimmy Mahan was very impressed.
3: But halfway,
1: near halfway through, I think, I passed him a note...
3: I don't know whether he has it yet or not, but it went something like this. You're doing great, or something like that. And that was it. He did very well, actually. Of course, he was very nervous, his first broadcast. And I know his father was with him. <clears throat> his father was more nervous than me. How was.
1: Moving into the 40s and the war years and the advent of Gus Inglesby, a civil servant whose administrative post carried responsibility for the whole station, including sport, and two had the problem of apportioning what little money there was to go round.
6: I recall that there was about £12,000 a year to cover artist fees and plays, talks, discussions and sport, and we just got a small share of it, a very small share of it. We had to be very careful about our spending too, so as not to go over the amount allotted. Always find ourselves in trouble at the Department of Finance. But the commentators took what was offered. It wouldn't compare to the BBC scale. I suppose times were hard too for them, and they were glad enough to get what they could.
1: And there were problems for the technical staff too.
3: It was very tough in the war years because we had to hire microphones as we wanted them. And uh, they cost ten shillings a time. We hire them from standard telephones. And they were very mean about them too, I'll say that, now that the whole thing is over and done with. It had to be an inspector, the rank of an inspector, they went over for the microphones. They wouldn't give them to anybody else. And there was nobody else to hire them from, so they knew we were stuck. And that that was part of the shoestring.
6: Well, I think equipment was very limited at the time and travel facilities weren't good. And probably we had a bigger uh, audience then than we would ordinarily have had. Some people who couldn't attend couldn't come to Dublin. In those days, I mean, trains were run on wood and the rest of it tough.
1: Still, sport carried on. Field games, indoor sports and water sport were all covered live. Although in one instance, a debutant rowing commentator rather scuttled himself.
6: We did uh, a bit of rowing and uh, Roy Bradford was the commentator for rowing. Mm-hmm. He, was a, he was a student at Trinity College at the time. You know Roy Bradford? He was later a minister from the north. I mean a politician.
3: There was a, a maiden aide from Dublin, I know, in this particular race and this young fellow, it was his first in ever time and uh, he was very interested in the Dublin crew, you see. And the water was a bit choppy, it was a bit rough. I remember saying, uh, I remember him going on, a, oh, they're, they're Dublin team, they're tiring, they're tiring. As a matter of fact, you see, they're shagged. <laughs> Can they show you he never commentated
1: again? <laughs> Did he not? <laughs> no. And so Gus Inglesby widened the search for suitable commentators.
6: Yes, they applied. Numbers applied from time to time, and we used to arrange with the, with the associations too. Test them from the venues when there'd be a particular match on.
1: And then Michael O'Hare, now firmly established as a Gaelic Games commentator, decided to broaden his horizons and he asked to be tried on racing.
6: We tested him at Baldor, I like, think, about 1941 or so, mm. maybe 42, with others at the time, and we gave him uh, races after that. He knew his job. I thought he had the makings of a fine racing commentator, and I think he had. But he would have been surprised himself had he not been selected. I think Damon Andoes was tested that day, but he wasn't very keen on going forward. I think he went forward to oblige me more than anything else.
5: That was in Baldoyle, and I think it was on New Year's Day. It was early anyway in 1945, and uh, there were three people tested that day, and the race that I drew out of the hat was one with 32 runners. It was won by a horse owned by the late Joe McGrath called Sammy's Rock. And I had the good fortune that day of being able to name the 32 as they passed the post of the finish. And, uh, well, that put me on the road to the racing broadcasts. And the first racing broadcast that I did was the Irish Grand National won by Airdom.
1: The earliest recording we have is his commentary on the Galway Plate of 1947.
7: They're all under pressure. It's a three-horse race now. New Pyjamas and Lock Conn and Charles Edward. They're swung into the straight now and they're coming up the hill. It's Charles, Ed- Charles Edward on the near side. New Pyjamas on the inside. It's New Pyjamas on the inside. Charles Edward on the near side. Lock Conn has tied, but up in the front. with a head and neck finish. It's terrific. It's Charles Edward on the near side. And Charles Edward has won from New Pyjamas. Lock Con. Then comes the gripper. Frank Carrig. Cavaliero!
1: 1947 was to be a momentous year with the All-Ireland Football Final moved to New York for the first and only time. It was essential it should be broadcast, but as the controller of programmes, Rabor the Farrakhan, found out, it wasn't going to be all that easy.
0: Uh, the director at the time, Seamus Braynoyne, who was himself, of course, a, a champion uh, Gaelic footballer, the, foot- the first match he went over to the Department of Finance to ask for a few hundred pounds so that he could send uh, Michael O'Hare as commentator and they could book the lines. Uh, Our finances did not allow us to take on uh, a thing like this without direct, specific permission. And he was met by the Assistant Secretary of the Department of Finance, uh, Sean Moynihan. And uh, Mr Moynihan was not uh, even as interested in sport as, as I am. He had apparently no inkling of what went on in the in the Irish world of sport. And he, he looked at, Miss, at Seamus O'Brien and he said, Seamus, tell me, does anybody listen to these football matches? Mm. Uh, I happened to be in O'Connell Street that night when the <coughs> match was coming through because of the uh, difference in time. Of course, it was coming to us uh, at night. Every car in O'Connell Street was parked and every radio was on.
5: I don't think people nowadays quite realise what a broadcast from New York in 1947 really meant. But here we were, back in 1947, bringing an entire commentary of an All-Ireland football final from New York to the people here in Ireland.
6: The match overran, and he implored for extra time, which he got. It was just the closing minutes of the game.
1: But apart from the overrunning at the end... There had been a far greater problem before the broadcast had even started.
6: Before chief went across for the match and discovered when he got to New York that the lines hadn't been extended to... The booking of the lines hadn't been extended to the polar grounds. Well, it was quite a simple thing to have them extended. Somebody had fallen down along the way. So he wired us, sent us a cablegram across, which I got on the Saturday morning, and then we just gave the okay for the lines to go to the polar grounds. But the independent on the following day made great capital out of it.
5: We out there in New York, the late Paddy O'Keefe and myself, uh, started chasing round to see what we could do to uh, get these lines uh, active for Radio Air and the equipment to go to the ground and all the rest. And even in those days, getting something done on a Saturday in New York wasn't exactly easy. And if it wasn't for the fact that Mayor Bill O'Dwyer, the man from Bohola in County Mayo, was the mayor of New York in those days, I don't think that broadcast would ever have happened. And in
0: the meantime, inquiries were set on foot, and uh, we found that the mistake had been made by the British Post Office. And at this point... Our own post office told Radio Aaron to drop the matter. We were not to criticise
3: the British post office.
1: Eamon Andrews was another commentator to climb to fame in the 40s, principally as a boxing commentator.
3: So I remember one night in the stadium, Eamon Andrews, he fought uh, somebody, No, you know, I couldn't tell you who it was, but he won it anyway. He came then and did two or three commentaries on various votes
6: I think he had won the junior championship just before he did the commentary I would have preferred had he done the commentary first <laughs> but the matches were so arranged that uh, they came on before the before the commentary which is perhaps a little bit unfortunate I wasn't at the stadium that night
0: hmm
6: had it been I think I would have tried to get a change in the program to allow the commentaries first before his fight
3: I didn't have much to do with him as a commentator. I did tennis with them. I think that was about his first. The the Irish
1: uh, Open Championships or something like that. I know we were in Fitzwilliam anyway. But Eamon also covered soccer, and after Ireland had beaten Finland at Elliman Park in the World Cup in 1949, he interviewed the man who'd scored two of the Irish goals.
8: Now, this time we've got Con Martin here beside us, and as you probably heard before now, during the game when the centre-forward is injured, Con comes up from the centre-half position and plays centre-forward. And right enough, he made quite a difference at the forward line, and I'm just wondering how he feels about it coming up playing centre-forward. I'm sure it's the first time he's played centre-forward internationally at any rate. So let's tell us about that, Con.
9: Well, uh, this is the first time I've played centre-forward in an international match, and I enjoyed it very much, especially when my skipper, Johnny Carey, asked me to take over the position.
1: 1949 heralded the birth of a major sports magazine of the year, Sports Stadium. Its first editors, Brian Dernan and Gus Inglesby.
6: I think it did something for sport in Ireland at the time Mm -hmm. and afterwards. It was an interesting magazine programme. Of course, it has developed now into, into television. You have it on Saturday afternoons. I think it was Frank McManus at the time who was keen on a programme of that type and suggested I might take it on, which I did with Brian. Brian didn't stay with us very long.
1: The programme grew in popularity, but many listeners wanted to hear it on a Saturday. At the time, Seamus Cavanagh explained why it had to be broadcast on Fridays.
2: A Dublin listener, in another letter, wants sports stadium to be broadcast every Saturday night instead of Fridays, as we intend. He claims that he wants to hear all the results of the weekend sports. Well, we'd welcome listeners' views on this, but we'd like to make it perfectly clear that this programme is not simply a collection of sports results. Most of the important weekend sports are adequately dealt with in the usual way. Our aim is much wider, as we've told you in our opening announcement.
1: There was disharmony in 1951, when the GAA National League Finals were played in New York, but Michael O'Hare was not sent there as commentator. Instead, to save expense, an American who did public address announcements over there, was recruited. His name, Lefty divine. The broadcast, Total Disaster, An Outcry Followed.
2: Radio Review, 4th of October, 51, by OGD. The first job of a commentator is to tell his listeners what is going on. His second, to relay and sometimes to create the excitement of what is going on. And his third to keep talking at all costs. Mr. Devine did none of these things. Instead, he gave us a mass of irrelevant details interpolated into a commentary that will be memorable chiefly for the endless chain of pauses and his willful, wanton wandering from the point of play. It was, in fact, so bad that one cannot help wondering on whose authority or on what recommendations Radio Aaron made this appointment? Or did Mr. Devine's audition promise better things?
6: We would have liked to have sent Michal our hair over, but uh, the minister at the time, it was Mr. Childers, I think, and he suggested another commentator whom he'd heard of in New York that was Lefty Devine. So we settled for that. I don't think it was a very successful choice and I regretted it.
5: On the morning of the match, it dawned on me, if this fella happens to be good, I'm going to seem the greatest fool that ever was. And without being catty or anything like that, the match wasn't on five minutes that night and I was dancing, the only time I ever danced in my life on top of a table with sheer joy because the gamble of saving the few bob had kicked back a little bit. And I do feel that that particular night did Mihalo O'Hare more good, although he was at home. And it got a lot of publicity after the match. And I will never forget a line in an article which was written by Mitchell Cogley on the subject and the article wound up with the line O'Hare is human to forgive divine.
1: Meath, of course, were the home finalists in that National League campaign and Michael O'Hare had the satisfaction, in a sense, of broadcasting a commentary on them the following year, 1952, as they beat Cavan in the All-Ireland football final.
7: The far wing, where Manny McDonald's going racing out after it. Manny McDonald has it now, virtually on the corner flag. He sends it right across the goalmouth. Peter McDermott has it now, 21 yards out. He takes a shot high, and there goes the equaliser, scored by Peter McDermott. In
1: 1953, the appointment Philip Green, sports officer, was announced. It brought the sports department, as such, into being. But troubles continued behind the scenes. There always seemed to be something wrong, whether it was with athletics, the GAA, soccer or, as in this instance, the rugby union.
0: It was their habit at international matches, say, when when Ireland would be playing England. It was their habit to play, uh, God save the king or queen, whichever it was. And uh, our way of dealing with that was that we didn't begin the relay until the anthem had been finished. And then we just started the commentary... But after a while we resented this treatment of the National Broadcasting Service and indeed the the listening public so much that we decided we would not take the international matches from Lansdowne Road at all. Uh, But a member of the council said to us, hold your hand, I said to the director, hold your hand, the situation is changing rapidly. And of course it has, we all know it has changed. With regard to soccer... Uh, the only thing that disturbed the harmony of relations there was that when the cup final would come on the FAI, very understandably indeed uh, did not want to have any wavelength but the let alone the high power uh, transmitter and our difficulty was that there was always there was always an important GAA match on on the same day purely for broadcasting reasons, the reason being, of course, that we knew the GAA match would attract a much bigger audience. Purely for that reason, we were unable, very often, to give the Athlone wavelength to the FAI. Now, this situation persisted for some years and was a great bother to us because uh, what, for one thing, people were inferring that Radio Wern was biased against soccer, which in certainly in the rector's case, in my case, was quite untrue, totally untrue. There was an occasion on which uh, I had to cut off a GA commentary. Not a, a pleasant thing to do, but you had two national bodies, each with its own... Uh, objective, and therefore having to seek accommodation when difficulties cropped up. And one of our difficulties was that some GAA matches went well over the time provided, and uh, we were trying to get the GA to understand that uh, timing was of the essence of, of radio. This day, the match went on, went 40 minutes over time, and somebody phoned me from Penry Street, there's you no know what to do, and I said, cut them off. There was, as you can imagine, though as blue murder questions in the doyle and roars from the uh, GA public, listening public, and so on. We simply felt that we had to protect
1: our own independence. Patrick O'Keefe, the far-seeing secretary of the GAA, had, in an earlier broadcast, outlined the ideals of the association.
2: To foster and cherish our national pastimes—hurling, football, and handball—as portion of the individuality of our nation; yes. to cultivate a sturdy and virile manhood, and combine the spirit of rivalry with the sense of comradeship of the Gael; yes. to promote Gaelic ideals in our young men and develop a sense of pride in things Irish and national; mm-hmm. and to help and encourage the restoration of our native town, and to support the products of Irish industry.
0: We did some experiments with the use of the Irish language. They were very discreet experiments, such as the Eractus, Eractus Neveil Gemach, the St. Patrick's Day hurling. I forget to say that among those who complained of the use of the Irish language were many people who signed themselves Old Gael,
1: which is ironic. And now a handful of stars, the voices of five celebrities, heard for the first time just about a quarter of a century ago.
9: I intend to go after the middleweight championship and failing getting get in a, a match with Robinson, then I shall definitely go after Joey Maxson for the cruiserweight title.
1: Boxing, Randy Turpin and now in golf, Bobby Locke. Well, the Irish Open in 1938 was my first big success as, in, as a professional. I turned uh, pro in 1938 and managed to beat Henry Cotton by one shot at Port Monarch, and was the only player to break 70 in that round and got an extra 200 pounds for that. Tennis, Little Mo Maureen Connolly.
5: I feel very, very happy about doing it. You know, I've looked forward to coming to Ireland now for quite a while. And, of course, winning our championship was almost as big a thrill as winning Wimbledon.
1: Table tennis, Johnny Leach.
5: Well, of course, the most important one is the world's table tennis world's championships. Then there's the four nations which I won in Sweden a few weeks ago and a few trophies and things which I've collected in Denmark, Holland, Switzerland, France, etc.
1: And soccer, Rach Carter.
4: I think we'll all agree that uh, experience counts a lot and young players watching an experienced player can learn quite a lot.
1: Carter, who had won all the honours in England, won an FAI Cup medal with Cork Athletic, beating Evergreen in the All Cork final of 1953.
8: As Vaughan places the ball on the far touch line for this corner kick, and he takes it, right footed, a great kick it is too, comes in, Barrett misses punch, and Cutter has it, and he, calls. he scores into the net. Davey Noonan, Davy Noonan scores. Cutter and Davy Noonan both shot there, and eventually Dave Noonan crushed the ball into the net.
1: Another milestone was passed in '53. Before Gus Inglesby returned to the civil service, he had initiated the moves which, through the cooperation of RTF, led to the All-Ireland Finals being relayed through Radio Bratisville.
6: Well, you might say it's my doing, but uh, it had been suggested to me by uh, a Holy Ghost Father who was out in Nigeria and who would have loved to have heard the broadcasts, the annual broadcasts, you know, the All-Irelands, but couldn't. Well, then we had had hundreds of letters from Australia, New Zealand, and other parts from priests out there who would have liked also to have heard the finals. So we talked it over, this priest and I, and he thought there'd be a chance of Bratseville taking it and relaying it, you see, to the world if you like, and it worked out.
1: The Olympic Games of 1956 in Melbourne brought glory to Ireland when Ron Delaney won the gold medal in the glamour event, the 1500 metres. After a hero's welcome on his return home, he came to our studios to relive the race.
9: When we hit the bell, the whole field had come as a group and bunched into a, a six-yard space, which was just fantastic. Twelve men all running together within six yards. And I was in, I'd say, about ninth or tenth position at this time and I had an inside position which wasn't too good but uh, so I relaxed and next minute I saw Gunnar Nielsen of Denmark look back at me and he gave me the beck to move inside him for which I thanked him and I took this very nice opportunity and I moved inside him and then I had a gap to move out on and this was at the 300 yard stage with Houston now taking over the lead from Lincoln. I decided I would move up slowly and hit hit the bunch at 150 yards from home, a thing I had planned all along. And Landy was ahead of me slightly, and he was really moving, he was working, you know? I got by Landy pretty easy, and that put me in fourth position, about 180 yards to go. And uh, when I saw Houston in front of me, so I really put the boot down, as we say at home here, and I found that I was surging to the front with very little difficulty. And uh, I hit the front, and I knew I was going away from them. And uh, 50 yards from the tape, I realized I had the race won, and I started to remember breaking out into a big smile. And when I went through the tape, I so delighted I threw my arms up in the air. <laughs> One
1: of soccer's most dramatic moments came at Deliman Park in nineteen fifty-seven when a late goal for England knocked Ireland out of the World Cup.
8: Playing last time, time is up as Finney comes back for England. Finney and Sayward. Finney centering now for England. Back to centre He's going in, he's going in, he's beaten Sayward, he's beaten Sayward, he crosses, and it's a goal. It's headed in by Atio in the last overtime. Overtime, Finney not tackled there by Sayward, 15 seconds overtime and a goal to England, scored by Attio from Finney's Cross.
1: But in 1963, the League of Ireland splendidly turned the tables with a magnificent win over the full England team.
8: 45 seconds left in the game on the stopwatch. The League of Ireland in their most glorious night, leading by two goals to one. What a night this is, what a night to remember. Half a minute left in the game as Emma Dorsey takes the goal kick. 0-2 on the score in favour of the League of Ireland. The play back into the English half. Eddie Bellingham under the ball. Offield under the ball. Bloody Hill onto the ball. And there goes a the full-time whistle. Look at the crowd invading the pitch. The League of Ireland have won, or is it the full-time whistle? Yes, it's not. It's a free. It's a free, but it's still, of course. 30 seconds left in the game it's not the full time whistle well it looked like it the way referee Mean extended his arm that time but on the stopwatch now it's full time there are only seconds left in the game and the police were in on the pitch the guards were in on the pitch to make sure there is no further encroachment a free to England inside their own half lost time being played Moore with a free kick upfield upfield to his right Willie Brown heads clear gets the ball away into a touch on the far side. A throw into to England. They're midway inside the Irish half. The throw-ins were taken. And the referee calls the ball. It's over! It's over! They've won! The legal manager won! Look at the invasion of Danelog.
1: Ireland's golden rugby years in 1948 and 1949 brought two great triple crown victories, but even then there was defeat by a touring team as Australia won in Lansdowne Road. Ten years later, on January the 18th, 1958, this was redressed when Ireland recorded her first ever success over rugby tourists, beating Australia with this late try.
8: Australia six, Ireland six. Only three and a half or four minutes of the most left of normal time and injury time we add. Henderson drops out, but it's not a very well positioned one. But they're underneath it and they're fighting for it, just outside the Irish 25, over on the far touchline. It comes back on the Irish side. Wood gets it, he's... Trying to fight his way, but he only goes quarter of an inch. It comes back on the Australian side to summons. Summons to Potts. It's intercepted. Intercepted by Hewitt. Henderson is running for the line. Will he get there? Henderson is running for the line into the corner. Will he get there? Yes, he does get there. He scores. Ireland have scored. Ireland have scored in the far corner.
1: The world sat up and took notice in August 58 when the greatest mile ever run in Ireland at Sentry Stadium gave the great Australia Herb Elliott victory over Ron Delaney and the first four over the line smashed the world record.
8: There goes the bell, and as they swing into it. The time, just under three minutes. Three minutes, less than three minutes. Elliott takes the lead again, followed by Lincoln. Elliott and Lincoln jostling for the lead, tussling for it, fighting for it, swinging away there. Halbrock moving into third place. Delaney hasn't kicked yet. Delaney hasn't kicked yet. It's Elliott by six yards now. He's coming on the pace. Steel spikes splintering the cinders on the far side. He's gone ten yards into the lead. Herb Elliott, Herb Elliot, a great runner, is racing away on the far side. And Delaney is a poor fifth at the moment. Elliott leading by seven yards now from Lincoln, from Halberg, from Delaney. who's passed Thomas. Delaney kicking now. Has he left too late? I think he has. He's kicking as hard as he can now, but Elliot is splitting away. Elliot's long legs flashing, tearing the dust on the track, swinging into the straight for the last time. It's Herb Billiard, Lewis singlet flashing, racing away to a 20-yard victory, and at the time he passes it, the time as he passes the tape, In front of Lincoln with Elliot and Halberg tossing for third place. It's a fantastic time, Phil. 354.6. 354.6. Liam Brown on the track. What do you make it? 354.3. I make it. Oh my goodness. What a race. What a time. In Dublin tonight, history has been made.
1: The Olympic Games.
8: And there goes the Panther.
1: Rome, 1960, the first time we had covered the Olympic Games. And in the same year, we recorded history in Gaelic football as Down won the All-Island Championship and took the cup across the border.
7: What a day for Down! What a tremendous day for Down! And let nobody argue one way or the other, they are fully deserving of this great victory today. Down two ten, 10 Kerry 8 points. Kerry played with all their zest and all their zeal... But this down team that some people said were due a blinder this year, well, they produced a blinder on the occasion when it was really wanted. And now they're every man jack of them being carried shoulder high. And here's Kevin Musson coming up now. Coming up to take the cup, the Sam Maguire Cup, from the patron of the Gaelic Athletic Association, Dr. Morris. The first time in history that the cup has crossed the border.
1: But no change in hurling as the traditional rivals, Tip and Cork, battled it out in the Munster final.
7: Darling is trying to go through. His way is blocked. Paddy Barry's got up to help him. Quan is taking a shot to go! It's a goal, but it looks like too late for Cork. Mick Quan, the scorer in the dying moments. Mick Quan, the scorer of that one, making it 4.13 to 4.11. Time ticking away now. Out comes the puck out, and there goes the final whistle, and Tipperary have beaten Cork by two points. And in
1: 1960, we told the story live as the World Golf Cup came to Port Monarch, consequent on Ireland's success through Harry Bradshaw and Christy O'Connor in Mexico two years earlier, and an emerging Arnold Palmer teamed with Sam Snead to win the Canada Cup for the United States. Boxing fans also had a boost in the 60s when Noel Andrews flew to Chicago, for a live commentary on the Liston-Patterson World Heavyweight title fight, and Irish racing interests saw success on both sides of the Atlantic in 1968, as Vincent O'Brien saddled Survivor to win both the Washington DC International and the Epsom Derby. Survivor is just behind the leader, they've got
7: two furlongs to go, and a corner who's the leader, being challenged by laureate and remand, then Survivor is next. And he hasn't unleashed his finishing power yet, and here he begins to come now. A furlong and a half to go, and it's Connors in front, but the survivor isn't going to get there. And with a furlong to go, it's Connors who's the leader in second place. Now the survivor is flying, or is he going to get there? they have got 100 yards to go, and it's Connors. it's the It's less than 100 yards to go, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Survivor's the winner, Connors, is second, Round Athos is next.
1: One of the very happy days in sport, but in the council chamber rather than on the field, was the ending of the GEA ban on foreign games, for so long a cause of contention and of division among Irishmen. The motion to rescind the ban, Rule 27, was passed at the GEA Congress in Belfast in 1971.
3: I would ask Congress to accept that I should ask one of the sponsoring counties for deletion to formally move deletion of rule 27 and that i would then be permitted to declare rule 27 deleted
4: harkan kishtiar waka mulam for a move and dockidge the ruin cha
3: my god kekadian lish tambo to the mahagos well in the name of congress I declare Rule 27
1: deleted. And so to 1975, and as if to celebrate the golden anniversary of Irish broadcasting, a golden display from Ireland's soccer star Don Givens, who equalled a 41-year-old record when he scored all four goals at Dalymont Park as Ireland beat Turkey in the World Cup
8: letting it run on to the right to Tracy. Tracy has Mulligan in support, ignores him, gives it instead to Liam Brady. Brady swings it to uh, uh, the right wing, to Mulligan. He sees Mulligan. He has peripheral vision. He sees it everywhere. Uh, Mulligan crosses, and Gibbons hit Again! It's four! It's Gibbons again!
1: These have been some of the moments, some of the men some of the memories which have filled our 50 years. And now we strike out boldly towards the full century. Some of us mightn't be around to help in blowing out the hundred candles, but we'll continue to kindle the sporting flame. That will always be our goal. Slon, agus